Hello and welcome to episode number 182 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we speak to Ryan Gingeras, Professor of History at the Naval Postgraduate School in the US. Keen listeners will recognize Ryan from multiple appearances he's made on the podcast over the years. That's because he's an incredibly productive author and writer, most recently of the book The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, 1918 to 1922, just published by Alan Lane. In our very rich conversation, we obviously discuss the events of the years described in the book, and we also touch on how this era is invoked by various sides in contemporary political debates, as well as more broadly, the different shades of popular nostalgia for the Ottoman Empire in today's Turkey and elsewhere. But before we start, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and eBooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now enough of my pleading, let's move on to our conversation with Ryan Gingeras. Just a mere culpa before we get going, listen out because early on I referred to the Habsburgs of Austria as the Habsburgs of Australia, which is quite funny. We actually started with the approach that Ryan took to the book. He writes at one point that painfully few studies of the post-1918 years delve into the experiences of those who were not generals or great statesmen. Even fewer attempts to distill this history with an eye to the diversity of the empire's communal politics. To tell the empire's fall without deference to local conditions ultimately, he says, is a disservice to the richness of the Ottoman experience as a whole. So I started by asking Ryan Gingeras whether he was aiming to write a more granular, bottom-up account of how events were experienced on the ground among local communities rather than focusing primarily on the actions of political players and statesmen. I mean, I try to balance the overarching story of the period between 1918 and 1922 in terms of the high drama of events with the voices of people who are observers on the ground. And, you know, if you look at especially English language works that are dedicated to the end of the Ottoman Empire, beginning of the modern Middle East, 
these are books more about the high drama of it. And I have to say, in Turkish language books, I think one among the central features of, of books that deal with the armistice as a general history is to echo the core thesis of, you know, the Natuk or the great speech of Ataturk, which is to retrace Ataturk's rise to prominence. And I wanted the book to be more off-center. I wanted the book to be about the observations of orphan children in Antep or the experiences of line officers on the front in the fighting between Greece and the national forces or, you know, the observations of foreign miss missionaries. I'm, I think all of those sorts of things give a better feel for the core nature of Ottoman society, especially, again, as you put it, at a more granular level and, you know, with a little bit more attention to the diversity and the richness on the ground. Now, the fall of the Ottoman Empire was predicted in Europe throughout the 19th century. And in the end, the Ottomans fell along with the other old houses of Eastern Europe, the Romanovs in Russia, the Habsburgs in Australia and the Hohenzollerns in Germany. So a simple question, really, given the fact that it was long predicted elsewhere and given those other precedents at the same time, do you today, in hindsight, see the fall of the Ottoman Empire as ultimately inevitable? In some ways, the, the thing that hopefully comes across in the book is that one could very easily imagine scenarios where some iteration of the Ottoman Empire endures. And, you know, one of the things that the book opens with is really the ambiguity of the fall of empires in general. And I think this is an issue that historians are more sensitive to now. And, you know, if you consider this, that right next door to the Ottoman Empire is Iran. Iran emerges from the First World War really quite battered by comparison to the Ottoman Empire. I mean, in some ways, Iran loses a really significant percent of its population to, to fighting and to deprivation and starvation somewhere in the order of about 10% of the Iranian population dies as a result of the First World War, even though Iran is not a combatant. Iran is occupied, much like the Ottoman Empire, in the final stages of the First World War and afterwards, and that there's real instability throughout the land in Qajar, Iran. And yet Iran survives as an empire, or at least it maintains its core imperial institutions through this period. And even though Iran fundamentally becomes very nation-state-like as a result of the policies of, of Reza Shah in the, in the 1930s, it doesn't necessarily shed its imperial institutions until 1979. So you could go point to other sort of examples where, you know, shades of imperial order endure or are perhaps just modified as a result of time and revolution. You know, whether you're talking about Russia's metamorphosis into the Soviet Union, China's evolution from empire to republic to communist rule. And we see in all these states very empire-like institutions. And one could conceivably see a scenario getting into kind of fan fiction here, but you could conceivably see a scenario where some aspect of the Ottoman Empire or some thread from the long past endures well into the future past 1922. And so this is a long-winded way of saying, yeah, the Ottoman Empire could have survived in some way. Yeah, that idea of continuity, it's become something of an academic standard, as far as I understand, in the last few decades. 
that there was this significant continuity from empire to republic. And that obviously contrasts with the previous official narrative, which kind of portrayed this shift as a 100% sharp shift from old to new. You know, the major figures of the early republic, including Ataturk, were essentially late Ottoman figures, but also the fact that, you know, much of the institutional memory was a continuation of trends in the late Ottoman period. And on this question of continuity, you spend a bit of time in the book talking about the reforms of the 19th century. And all those reforms were basically aimed at kind of saving the Ottoman state, essentially. The storm clouds were gathering and there was various reform movements from whatever ideological persuasion. They were all about centralising, increasing control of the centre in order to maximise efficiency and to try and save the empire, essentially. But obviously circumstances overtook them and the empire unravelled. But in the long run, could we say that those reforms, they didn't just fail, they were actually essential. And in the long run, they actually planted the roots for the later republic, which for all its faults did end up more developed and advanced than comparable states in the Middle East. Do you think it's possible to make that argument that in the short term, those those reforms failed because they failed to save the Ottoman state as it existed at the time? But in the long run, they planted the roots for the later republic and then for the developments subsequently. Yeah, I mean, those are all correct. But, you know, one of the things that inspired the book, too, is this issue that I think you see a lot in academia, specifically in you know, the study of Ottoman Empire and Middle East, is this issue of continuity. And I really wanted to be rather emphatic. We should certainly understand the continuities going that go beyond 1922 and the ways in which aspects of Ottoman politics or culture endure in Turkey. And in, and in some cases, become a central feature of other post-Ottoman states in the Middle East. Now, having said that, I think one of my frustrations more now is that I think this is a little bit of an overcorrection and that we should also devote ourselves to really understanding why and how the empire ends and why that ends up shaping the ways in which people behave, let's say, after 1922. And, you know, this is sort of a focal point of a couple of books that I've written. But in this one, I, I try to sort of be more detailed in looking at specific issues that crystallize the need among senior leaders, eventually who come to gather in Ankara, to not just kill off the empire, but but repudiate it. And I think by emphasis, by looking at continuity too much, we kind of lose the forest for the trees. Because I think understanding the fall, the nature of the fall, the politics of the fall, we, I think, get deeper into sources of anxiety in contemporary politics, a lot of the schizophrenia you see in, in nationalist politics. And I think also, too, this sense of dissonance that people genuinely feel post-1922 with respect to the past. The book, I think, is really good at historical contextualization because basically you talk about how those internal debates about the old order basically being discredited and the new elites who were actually late Ottoman figures themselves actually really sought to distinguish themselves from those previous generations. And that was a really strong internal debate at the time that it's quite hard to get a sense of these days. But when you look at the text that you look at, it was front and center at the time. There was really no way that a figure like Ataturk could in any way associate himself with the young Turk leaders, even though he himself was part of the same milieu. So that was the internal debate that was going on. And that was why this break was seen as being necessary. But you also put it into a broader global context, really, because you talk about how for many, moving forward meant more than simply dis disestablishing the Ottoman monarchy. The empire's culture, as well as its history, was subject to repudiation and demolition. 
And you say that, quote, the times in many ways seem to warrant such steps. A newer, more ideologically polarized age was taking shape in Europe and Asia. Reconstruction or modernization efforts across the world appeared to validate movements intent upon creating purer national cultures grounded in race and ethnicity. Generally speaking, the global political climate tended to favor those who looked forward to a more utopian future. The fall of the Ottoman sultans only reinforced what many assumed was true in 1918. The era of time-honored dynasties was giving way to more popular, rational and authentic states and societies. So I think really is is a nice demonstration of how it really shouldn't be surprising that this process happened when it did, because this was an era when new political form, new nation states were emerging. And it was obviously going to happen because that's basically what was happening, else, happening elsewhere as well. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, again, if you want to get into counterfactuals and, and hypotheticals, on the one hand, one thing that is going on, both in a very explicit way, but also in a way that I think doesn't necessarily come out as clearly as one would hope, say, in the press or in people's memoirs, is that identity issues post-1918 are magnified by the peace terms that Woodrow Wilson offers that not only the, the terms that are offered to the Ottoman Empire, but broadly speaking to the peoples of the central powers, put such a heavy emphasis on national identity. And the language that Wilson uses specifically magnifies this issue of Turkishness. And one thing that I really labored upon in writing this, and honestly, in, in, in most of my books, which I, I have a kind of this particular sensitivity to this, is the question of whether Turkishness means the thing what we think it means during this period of time, and that Turkishness has this kind of ambiguity through much of the Ottoman, late Ottoman years, and yet becomes much more of a crystallized idea post-1922. And this is a big part, I think, of how we should understand the end of the Ottoman Empire is the reasons why people stop referring to themselves as Ottomans and start referring to themselves as Turks or as, you know, being Armenian or specifically Armenian or Greek or what have you, but more specifically why Muslims will come to re refer to themselves as Turks as opposed to being Ottomans. And I think there are very clear expressions of this debate between 1918 and 1922 where people say, well, look, we should start calling ourselves Turks instead of Ottomans because Armenians and Greeks don't call themselves Ottomans anymore. And so we should just call ourselves Turks because the concept of being Ottoman is sort of dead. You know, you do see things like that, but I think what is a better indicator is what's going on in the international arena, specifically in Europe, that the end of empires on continental Europe are making way for these nation states. And even though, you know, in 19, late 1918, 1919, there isn't a direct association with the breakup of these states and the formation of nation states with the Ottoman Empire, I can't help but assume that many observers, including senior leaders, look at what's going on in, in Europe in particular and begin to speak of what remains of the Ottoman Empire in greater ethno-national or nation-state-like terms. The broader context helps us also understand and appreciate the fact that what happens in the Ottoman lands between 1918 and 1922 came to symbolize 
broader trends in the world at large, whether it's resistance or kind of post-war identity politics, you know, the travails of transnational empire, specifically the British and the French. And you can see even some degree of reckoning and foreshadowing to the kinds of troubles that Britain and France would have more acutely post-World War II. In this respect, you know, the international context plays a really important part of the story in the book. Another thing that the book talks about is the the rise of Mustafa Kemal, obviously Mustafa Kemal at the time, later Ataturk. And you talk about it as being by no means inevitable or unambiguous because alternative figures were also at the same time arranging resistance in Anatolia. And uh, Mustafa Kemal was one of several men who helped lead this national struggle. You talk about how a chaotic set of circumstances led to the renewed fighting in 1919 and how the sources reveal a broad, initially disjointed effort by the the remnants of the Committee of Union and Progress, the Young Turks, to counter the Allies and forestall the Empire's partition. And you say Ataturk's place in the early makings of this resistance movement remains somewhat difficult to pin down. By extension, his eventual rise as the nation's saviour appears less than predestined. Now, we know that he was obviously very ruthless in eliminating any rivals in those early years. But could you just talk a bit about that, how these potential alternative paths at the time that weren't taken? And it's obviously easy to think it's almost inevitable that Atatürk would emerge as the, the leader of the nation as he, as he became. But what about some of those alternative potential paths and, and why they weren't taken? I think it's important to take this subject up and dive into it in the depth that I do in the book for two reasons. You know, one is the fact that Ataturk himself, in his own accounting of the war, gives the impression of inevitability, right? And actually, this is something that he articulates very early in his sort of political ascendancy. It's in this very famous interview in 1922 where he essentially says, you know, I was in Istanbul, things were really terrible in the country. And so I decided to leave Istanbul and serve the country. And lo and behold, that started me on the path to power. And I think the sense of inevitability is a big part of his mythos, the mythos of his making. And and the other reason why I wanted to bring it out is that it's a big part of the ways in which we think about the end of the Ottoman Empire in that we do think about the end of the Ottoman Empire as the product of inevitability as a result of reasons we just discussed, but also, you know, specifically because of Ataturk, that Ataturk is this generational figure, is this unique individual who quite clairvoyantly saw the dangers and understood the problems of of the state and nation and therefore kind of brought about this great turn. And I wanted to deal with this issue because I think especially from the perspective of readers who may only know a little bit about this period and a little bit about the end of the Ottoman Empire and perhaps a little bit about the beginnings of Turkey, is that they do associate the period with Ataturk and that they see him as the central character that they want to know about, that they, you know, that is, it seems so essential. And what I really wanted to get across is the fact that Ataturk and his legacies, his mythos, acts as a real sort of shroud over this period because so much of what we understand about this period from the perspective of, let's say, others who surrounded him or from official histories that are produced after 1922 placates this mythos of Ataturk and mimics at least elements of his ascendancy rather closely 
And so what we lose is this, the contingencies that did define his ascendancy. And it obscures, I think, a really core mystery that, you know, scholars going back to, you know, the likes of Eric Jan Zerker several decades ago have pointed to, which is what is the thing that empowered Ataturk to consolidate control over these desperate groups that are planning or beginning to unleash some sort of resistance efforts towards allied occupation. And I think the best we can do based on the sources we have available is to say that he was something of a consensus figure among various elements of what remained of the Committee of Union and Progress. He was a consensus figure because he was obviously a a senior military leader. He was a, a general. He had commanded the Syrian front at the very end of the war. But perhaps most importantly, he was somebody who was an intimate of various senior members of the Committee of Union Progress, but he had distinguished himself as a dissident through the war and as somebody who was personally rather antagonistic towards the like of former Minister of War Enver Pasha and, and so on. And so, you know, in a political climate, and this is something that the book goes into in greater detail, in a political climate where a significant part of the elite was really quite embittered, not only by the war, but by the rule of the Committee of Union and Progress, having a former dissident was a way of trying to appeal to those members of the old elite or even members of the of the of the public who were not necessarily wanting to fight, but more importantly, were not interested in resuming a war under the leadership of the Young Turks. Did not want to necessarily see the Young Turks come back in power. Now, in terms of you know, kind of going forward from 1919 to the end of the war, it's not to say that there are necessarily direct challenges to Ataturk's increasingly becomes very personalized rule, but there's very clear formations of dissent within his ranks. And there is a good amount of grumbling. And then what we learn through subsequent works, specifically the diaries of the likes of Kazim Karabekir, some degree of personal ambition for leadership among others, right? Among the others would probably be Ralph Orbai, who was former minister of of the Navy, but who post-war, you know, plays a really important role in launching also the national forces, but becomes, you know, still remains a rather important figure in the national forces, but one who is imprisoned in 1920, doesn't necessarily return back into until 1922. I'm not necessarily sure these are individuals who could have on some sort of Earth 2 version of Turkey taken the place of Ataturk, but I think that the challenges of leadership that Ataturk faces could have resulted into a real internal crisis over the direction of the national forces and perhaps have undermined his his status as this centralizing figure even late into the, you know the armistice period as late as 1921 had you know on a kind of earth 2 version of the end of the ottoman empire had the national forces lost the battle of sakaria perhaps it would have been harder for some like Mustafa Kemal to retain power in the face of defeat. But I think in the long run, understanding the various factions that existed and the degree to which people were quite unnerved by the real cunning and, and I think sort of determination of, of Mustafa Kemal to consolidate power, you know, this I think detracts away a little bit from the sense of inevitability. 
Now, I want to I want to now bring the focus to the contemporary debate really about this period and some of the different strands that we can trace. Obviously, there's a lot of nostalgia today among Islamists and conservatives, particularly for the Ottoman Empire, but not just limited to them, because there's a mainstream political debate that basically frames the end of the empire as a disaster orchestrated by malign forces from afar. And you talk about how the Ottoman Empire is seen through the rosiest of tinted spectacles as a benign entity that brought peace and harmony to all its citizens. And of course, Erdogan himself has said that he sees the fall of the Ottomans as a, quote, moral and political catastrophe. And you also quote him as saying that the First World War occurred and the Ottoman state withdrew from these lands, meaning the Middle East. And from that moment on, this region became to be remembered with blood, tears and persecution. So obviously, they're a pretty nostalgic take. And as you describe in the book, you know, this kind of nostalgia is quite divorced from the reality of the time because you paint a pretty grim picture of the bloodshed and the violence that accompanied the breakdown of the Ottoman order over many years. And you describe it as almost apocalyptic in scale. Quote, the severity of the fighting in Anatolia between 1918 and 1922 reaped a staggering toll, leaving millions dead, maimed or displaced. Far more difficult to calculate are the cultural and social costs born out of this period of time. Large swathes of the empire's remaining lands were emptied of people, utterly destroying communities that had endured for many decades. The horrors of this era nurtured the political disillusionment harboured by growing numbers of citizens. By 1922, events appeared to have left little room for nostalgia. An empire representing many faiths and languages no longer seemed viable, and for its perceived sins, both past and present, the Ottoman royal family was overthrown and repudiated. So there you see at the time, as you describe it, the space for nostalgia was very, very narrow indeed. And it would look very strange from that era's perspective to, to see 100 years later the kind of narrative that we see today. And obviously, the standard conservative response to the points made in the quote that I just read out is that this you know, breakdown of order, the violent collapse of the Ottoman Empire, all really just shows the folly of smaller nationalisms. You know, this idea, you see it repeated in a number of places, you know, this poison of nationalism was responsible for destroying a previously benign imperial order. And basically, the various subject peoples of the Ottoman Empire should have just recognised that things were tolerable under the Ottoman yoke. And obviously, that's a pretty shallow and not very satisfying response, to be honest. But I do think it's a very widespread sentiment, actually. So what do you make of the current state of play, basically, regarding that sense of Ottoman nostalgia in contemporary Turkey? I mean, I think it comes from lots of places. You know, one thing that it makes that makes it so difficult to talk about this period inside of Turkey is the sense that there is this sense of partisan divide over issues of Ataturk, issues of the Ottoman Empire, and that they become sort of red lines that divide conservatives from Kemalists, from people who are see themselves as loyal and people who see, you know, who are defined as traitors. And I think that nostalgia, it's a, an internally very contradictory aspect of, of contemporary culture today. On the one hand, there is a nostalgia for the Ottoman Empire for not so much the kind of political system, but for this image that people have of it as being great and big and influential and therefore a power akin to the great powers of today. And I think that, that has a great deal of popular appeal. I think there is another aspect of it, one that you allude to that I think has that certainly is very popular among the Turkish right, which is the idea of the Ottoman Empire as having been a state in a culture 
with more appeal and more natural to the nature of Turks than the contemporary order, and specifically the Kemalist or post-Kemalist order. And that the end of the empire brought about these reforms and personalities that corrupted the state and nation as it was supposed to exist and had long endured. And the development of that kind of nostalgia is more recent, at least recent in the sense that it goes beyond the confines of the book. It's something that you know, you see developing more around, you know, the 50s and later. And so therefore, you know, the a lot of the the, the trauma of this period of the early 1920s is forgotten, right? It's it's physically forgotten because it's it's not a part of the personal experiences of of those who end up beginning to generate this kind of nostalgia from the 50s forward. And I think, you know, there's another part of it too in that there is I think below the surface in Turkey in particular a real curiosity about family history and about the ways in which people connect to the past. And naturally, as one thinks about or probes family history back a few generations, you get into the Ottoman Empire and you get into the ways in which your family may have lived or even perhaps even more importantly, where they had lived in the Ottoman Empire. And that kind of brings about a different, very different kind of nostalgia, a nostalgia for the fact that people trace their lineage back to places beyond the contemporary borders of, of Turkey. And I think you see some aspect of that kind of nostalgia develop again in the aftermath of the Ottoman Empire and the say in the 20 you know maybe even in the 20s and 30s but certainly more so I think by, again by the 50s that there is this developed consciousness of the personal history that people carry with them with relationship to the, the fall of the empire, but perhaps more importantly, the ways in which so many people left the lands of the old empire to settle in, in the Republic of Turkey. And so, you know, I think nostalgia can take lots of different forms, but the one that obviously is the one that we, we pay attention to most is the ways in which this nostalgia seems to either be used to validate the policies of someone like Erdogan or perhaps inspire the ambitions of someone like Erdogan. And I think, you know, for Erdogan, this is all of these different expressions of nostalgia play a role in the ways in he thinks about the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire as being once great, the Ottoman Empire representing a kind of order that he, you know, aspires to create that would have in some way, shape or form replace or minimize the reforms post-1922, and perhaps even a kind of personalized affinity for the Ottoman Empire. Empire, although I think we know a lot less about that of him in the way in which his family may have endured, you know, kind of the last years of the Ottoman Empire or the ways in which his family may have been the beneficiaries of the imperial order. It's really it's really hard to say. Yeah. On, and this nostalgia, it's not just limited also, of course, to the internal Turkish debate. You know, I was reading the comments on the on the FT review of, of your book, and it basically just descended into this really boring debate between people on either side arguing Ottoman Empire, good or bad. And it right. was just it, completely brain dead, really. 
people sure. talking about the state of the region post-Ottoman Empire, basically to justify Ottoman rule, saying this is proof that the Ottoman Empire was a good order and when it was lifted, you know, look at what happened. I suppose you could make exactly the same debate for any empire. Your response to whether you think an empire is either, quote, good or bad is basically how you approach it psychologically or emotionally more than anything else. I mean, one thing I wanted to do as a kind of broader objectives of the book is that the Ottoman Empire and more specifically its fall are so tied into the ways in which people see Turkey and Turks. One tends to forget that the empire and its legacies are equally important issues to the ways in which people who are not Turks think about themselves. And that I think we should acknowledge, as perhaps as, as brain dead as oftentimes these debates do become, it is a source of considerable, not just interest, but personal anguish for lots of people today. And I think that, you know, in trying to compose this book, I wanted the story to be told from the perspective of not just Turks, but also from Armenians, from international actors like missionaries who come and, and live in the Ottoman Empire and make it their home. This was an event that wasn't simply a trauma for Turks or a you know a seminal moment in the making of Turks. This is a really important moment for the makings of a variety of other peoples. And personally, I don't have a lot of patience to debate whether or not one should look at the Ottoman Empire in positive or negative terms. I think the fact of the matter is the way the Ottoman Empire collapsed, you could tell it as a singular story in the which in which people of all faiths suffer, right, and suffer considerably past the point of having any reason to try to figure out who suffered more. I mean, it was, the, the scale of it is just so devastating and, and universal. And, you know, at the same time, I think it's important to understand why and how people during this period of time suffered and understanding the political implications of that suffering. There's a really, really big difference, I would say, between, you know, those in the war who who suffered as a result of, you know, loss of family at the front and starvation and, you know, and people who are driven from their homes by the government and who are intentionally sent to a place to hopefully die off. I think the nature of that suffering matters and it, ma and it matters in the ways in which they think about their past and they think about their relationships with others. So it's not necessarily the question of who suffered more, but why. That I think is why it's, it matters politically and matters in terms of the ways in which we editorialize, you know, the retelling of this of this history. You know, it's a subject that is, I kind of share your exasperation in terms of the ways in which it does degenerate into the empire. It was good or it was bad. And I certainly hope the book isn't taken as fodder for one argument or the other. You know, I prefer not to think of the Ottoman Empire necessarily in good or bad terms, other than just to simply recognize that when it comes to suffering, it's important to under to be empathetic, but also to be to be critical at the same time. Now, Turkey in the era that you look at in the book is obviously one that is caught in this tension between being a victim of European imperialism and itself being an imperial power ruling over subject peoples. And I do wonder about, you know, the, the way that contemporary generations talk, not just about this era, but more broadly about history. It does always seem to me that various issues are constantly being reheated, relitigated, and people of different political persuasions are constantly making reference to historical events, precedents and lessons 
Why is that? Why do you think history is, is such a often live debate in Turkey and, and still used by various sides to make various political points today? I mean, it's a good question. I, I think there's something that is, I don't necessarily say, say unique, but there's aspects of Turkey that in Turkey's development that places it, you know, in rather limited company. And that is, I think, that from the outset of the Republic, the Republic's establishment, and you see element of the late Ottoman Empire too, but it becomes more, more of a refined tool with the Republic. You know, history is seen as a really essential tool in nation building. It, it is a political instrument first and foremost. And a considerable amount of energy is expended by the early Republican government and by Ataturk specifically himself in crafting a history that would be the basis of something like civics in Turkey, but more importantly, be a kind of political tool to validate his reign, validate the reforms and so forth. And so we don't see the development of an organic culture of appreciation and debate around history early on in, in Turkey that is able to free itself from this kind of political pressure. And arguably that it remains the case today. The fact that even though I would say an organization or a political unit like, say, the Turkish Historical Association or, you know, even the Ministry of Education, it doesn't necessarily wield as much power over over the country as, let's say, early iterations of these of these organizations once did. They do tip the scales quite a bit when it comes to shaping impressions around history and emphasizing that historical questions are ultimately political questions. And they are political questions that often boil down to are you loyal or not? You know, are you a traitor or not? Are you being swayed by, you know, the the lies of foreign interests and those who would undermine the Turkish state or not? And I think that the endurance of this culture in Turkey is among the things that makes writing about this period so, so difficult in, I think, two really distinct ways. One is, is it's not just that you have to endure the kinds of debates that we just talked about in the comments section of the, you know, the Financial Times. But, you know, the fact that I don't think, quite frankly, there is a real hunger in Turkey among the vast majority of the population for a new history of this period. There isn't a hunger for any kind of revision because I think people are generally satisfied with important editorial aspects of the history that they think they know. You don't necessarily see a widespread desire for reevaluation of the past. And I think this kind of canonical approach towards history in Turkey makes any kind of attempt to broaden the discussion and develop a history that's more empathetic of the story of the Ottoman Empire from the perspective of people who are not Turks. There is no deep, dark, hidden reservoir of interest in this kind of approach to history. And I think it's because of this long-standing influence of the government over the reasons why history matters. And so I'll conclude by saying I don't expect this book to at all be popular in Turkey. I don't expect it even to be necessarily translated into Turkish for the fact that I think that, among other reasons, there isn't that kind of desire for a different kind of storytelling when it comes to this period. 
we're talking about the contemporary reflections or impressions of this period. Another contemporary resonance is the paranoia that is clearly stoked by the government of a Greek invasion. And many references are made to events 100 years ago when Greek forces under Venizelos sought to claim the Aegean coast of Anatolia and Western Anatolia. And that basically laid the groundwork for the Turkish War of Independence. And you've written about Turkey-Greece tensions elsewhere. I just wanted to conclude, what do you make of how those events 100 years ago are being redeployed today, reheated and exploited by contemporary politicians, including Erdogan? Yeah, I mean, it is really crass, you know, especially now this repeated reference that Erdogan has made of Greece knowing their history, specifically remembering Izmir or Smyrna, you know, can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. You know, I, I suspect that the use and abuse of this history now in light of Erdogan's provocations towards Greece is the idea that Erdogan, as well as other boosters of this policy, think that the Turkish public have a very basic idea about what happened between 1919 and 1922, which is, you know, Greece invades because Greece and Greek Greeks have this insatiable hunger for Turkish land and that this hunger has never gone away and that now, you know, 100 years later, Greece may try it again. And I think the belief that people would buy this comes from the fact that, again, this this history is such a critical part of what counts as Turkish civics. You know, there's not a lot of room in Turkey for debate or contrary points of view on this point in terms of its its meaning and its relevance. You know, I don't know if this this line of thinking is very effective, but it's certainly one that has been placated, not just by Erdogan, but I mean, the, the person that comes to mind most at this time is somebody like Jihad Yajje, the, the for, former chief of uh, naval operations, who, you know, has become this really quite vocal supporter of some kind of aggressive policy towards Greece. He has re- repeated time and time again that the islands, the Aegean islands are being used now as a staging ground for a potential invasion of Anatolia. Which, I I don't know, from the outside looking in, it is the most ridiculous thing one could believe. But I suppose that on the basis of the fact that the average person maybe doesn't follow the issue as closely and would resort to time-honored perceptions of Greece as, again, being kind of insatiably hungry for Turkish land and having never gotten over the, the loss of Smyrna in 1922, I suppose you could believe that people would get behind this kind of, you know, aggressive policy on the basis of these, these time-honored perceptions. I don't know. I would say that on the flip side of this, 1922, it is as remembered in in Greece, but for very different reasons, you know, that it's not just a a moment of loss on the battlefield, loss politically, but the loss of culture. And that this is a, a time of really quite genuine grief over, again, the lands, but the, the languages, the, the, the dialects, you know, the cuisine, the, the identities of, of former Anatolian Greeks. And the fact that Erdogan has now harped upon this, I think has heightened this sense of grief and anxiety in Greece and, and not necessarily stoked a kind of counter-aggressive behavior, but rather, you know, a real sense of fear and, and even desperation. That was Ryan Gingeras. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 182 
Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.